Hello and welcome to the Mike Dominic Show. I am, of course, Mike Dominic. Today is March the 30th. We have a little bit of housekeeping here. Obviously, you know, things are crazy right now. We're a little behind on getting episodes out and we had a kind of a recording snafu with one episode. So technically, I have another episode, hopefully that we can salvage for you guys next week. I know it's been about you know, about a week before we've had anything out. So there's going to be a missing week between when this was recorded and when it actually releases. But my hope is that early April, we have kind of a double week, if that makes sense, right? So we were able to restore the lost recording and release it in cycle with whatever we're going to be doing then. So kind of doing a time, uh, a little HG Wells time foo here, talking to you from the future and the past or something. Anyway, so today we have an interview with Noah Gibbs. He is a very, very talented Rails developer. He's the author of a great book that I strongly recommend called Rebuilding Rails. He's also writing another work called Mastering Software Technique. If it's anything like Rebuilding Rails, I'm sure it's great. Very, very intelligent, very cogent comments on just, you know, even if you're not like a Rubyist, just on software development in general, kind of best practices. And if you are a Rubyist or you are, you know, someone interested in Ruby and Rails, then a lot of deep stuff for you in this. Uh, This is really a very interesting conversation. It's a perspective I didn't really consider too strongly before. A technique of kind of going back and literally trying to rebuild Rails with the purpose of gaining a better understanding of rails and becoming a better developer really cool right really interesting stuff as always we're brought to you by the mad botter we are a that's my company we're a software development consultancy if you need something built drop us a line at sales at the madbotter.com you can always follow me at dumanuko on twitter and the show at the mike dominic show on twitter i won't drag on any further so let's get to the interview but one more thing See, I got head of jobs there. We have a new newsletter that just came out. It's going to be in the show notes. That's going to contain some bonus content. We're going to try to have it out about once a month. So no pressure, but if you want to kind of get you know a little bit of extra goodies, go ahead and subscribe to that. And uh, all right, here is Noah Gibbs for our interview, and I hope you enjoy it. All right. Hello, Noah. How are you today? Uh, doing wonderfully. How are you? Great. Good, good. It's good to have you, folks. This is Noah Gibbs. Uh, I hear you know a little bit about Rails. Is that accurate? I've been known to dabble now and again. (laughs) So for those who don't know, um, Noah wrote a book I'm actually just about finished reading called Rebuilding Rails, which, you know, as titles go, I like it. It's bold. It's strong. It comes out hard. Uh, Thank you. What's that about? Well, I find most people understand things better when they've actually worked on them. And so the basic idea is you understand how to do Ruby framework code and, and, you know, something structured like Rails, something that's a lot like Rails by building a framework that works like Rails. You build a little app and it slowly gets sort of more Rails-like over time as you build more and more systems into your framework that look like Rails and then your app can use them. Uh, And so you build, you know, you build models, you build views, you build controllers. Eventually you build things like routing and and a little ORM. And so it's easier to see where Rails is doing what it's doing and how it's doing what it's doing because you've built the same kind of thing. Uh, it also helps that Ruby metaprogramming, while a lot of people find it a little mysterious, it's a very straightforward thing and it doesn't actually have that much to it. And so often, you know, for the whole magical, you know, Rails is magical. I don't know what the magic does. A lot of the problem with that is, you know, the metaprogramming is just a couple of APIs. And once you've used them, you understand them. And so by building something that uses the same metaprogramming in the same way, suddenly what Rails does isn't mysterious. It's a slightly different version of what you've already built. Right, right. So 
I'm a Rails developer myself, and one of the criticisms I, you know, when meetups used to be a thing, you know, before our current apocalypse. Um, <laughs> indeed. Indeed, yeah, that's terrible. I would get a lot of, shall we say, guff from, you know, Pythonistas telling me, wow, oh, there's so much magic in Ruby and Rails, and um, which is ironic because have you ever seen Django? But <laughs> Django is very Rails-like. I mean, I... It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad thing. I, I wish there were more decent competitors to Rails. You know, Rails is one of those things where like I, I look at the basic tricks it does and I go, oh, that's awesome. But if there's only one, it's not going to take the world. There needs to be more competitors. I wish more people that stole from Rails did it well. And I think Django is one of the best. Yeah, I would say they've certainly done a better job than I, I do quite a bit of C-sharp programming, though usually not web. Let's just say Entity Framework has nothing on active record. But <laughs> trolling aside. So, you know, I think you and I could throw around the word magic and we mean it as a positive thing. Right. Like, mostly. Yeah. But mostly. Sure. There's so, okay. That's great. When people are critical of the rails magic, right? Why even bother to learn it? What's kind of the problem inherent with it? Uh, what's the problem inherent with it? So rails is about convention over configuration. It's about putting things in the right place in the place where, you know, when you reach for a thing, it's there. It's about not repeating yourself. So you don't build out all the framework stuff. You have the framework do it for you. And the dark side of Every one of those things is that if you don't share the same basic sensibilities as, let's say, David Heinemeyer Hansen, foul-mouthed Dan, you're going to find that every time you reach for something, it's in the wrong place because it's exactly where he would put it. Right. So it's, shall we say, opinionated, perhaps. That's a fine description. Absolutely. And so nothing stops you from building out your own metaprogramming framework with everything where you would put it. In fact, I think that's a great idea. I think that's a wonderful exercise. And especially once you're a senior enough engineer that you know how these things work, I think it's a great idea to do it yourself. One of my hidden motives for writing the book was if there are a whole bunch of people that know how to do this, they can do it to their own tests instead of, you know, David Heinemeyer Hansen's tests. Like, I like his tests. I think he's very good at it. But I also think that we need way more people doing this. Sure. I mean, wasn't there, and oh, this is a long time ago, there was a competitive web application development framework to Rails that Rails just ended up consuming, right? absorbing it completely. I can't remember. Merb. Merb. Um, so it would be, I mean, as a Rubyist myself, it would be nice to not have the default just be Rails. I like Rails, don't get me wrong, but I really like your mission here of let's not make it a monopoly? Is that fair? Uh, yeah, that's absolutely part of my uh, mission. I, I think to be fair to other folks here, it's worth mentioning Sinatra is still out there. I, I feel like it's not well built internally. And I think that's a lot of the uh, obstacle to adoption is with something as simple looking as Sinatra, you kind of intuitively want it to be simple. And if you've ever dug into Sinatra's implementation, it is anything but simple, which seems like a giant missed opportunity. Uh, and then Hanami. Hanami is not in the sweet spot for most existing Rails users. Go figure. They didn't try to be Rails. That's probably for the best. Do you know what I mean by the hexagonal Rails approach? Or like N tier? No, I'm, I'm, also, I'm also not familiar with Hanami at all. What, what, ah. what is, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, to go back a step and kind of view it as something that can fix a problem with Rails, let's talk about what that problem with Rails is, and, and it'll probably become obvious. So Rails is very opinionated, but more specifically, Rails was built by a brilliant guy on a tiny team building out a lot of small Rails apps very rapidly. Uh, and so it uses a lot of what David Hanemeyer Hansen and, and several others refer to as sharp tools. It's designed for a small elite team. And you have never known misery like working with 
lousy Rails people who don't know what they're doing because they can affect absolutely everything and how everything is done everywhere through your application. It's the same problem as bad monkey patching. It can touch everything. In, in fact, I've directly known that specific misery, but keep going. Yeah. Well, so that's, I mean, that's fine. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with having a niche that is small, sharp team, give people an enormous amount of rope to hang themselves. And when it works, it works really well. You know, that's, I think that Ruby in general is is just great for that. But there's there are limits to that approach. And if you want to see the exact opposite approach as a strength, look at Java. Look at Java for what Java works well for. I'm not a big fan of Java most of the time, but that's partly because I'm usually not working on a large team full of people I don't know well. Java is a far better language than Ruby to work on a large team of people you don't know well if you're all working in the same process. I'm going to say not designed for that. What I mean is it's miserable to work that way, regardless of why it was designed how it was. Well, and I think you see that in the industry too, right? Places that tend to adopt Java are, shall we say, a little more traditional enterprise. Yeah. It's hard to tell how much is cause and how much is effect, but it's clear that there are very separate, very different niches there. Okay. So sorry, uh, I'm getting distracted. Uh, Interior architecture and hexagonal rails. So N-tier architecture, that's N like the letter N, tier, T-I-E-R, like a level. It's not technically older than Ruby, but let's say older than Rails approach to building out web apps and things sort of like them, uh, building out sort of large freestanding applications that do a lot of things. And the idea in general is you've got low-level interfaces like the network interface, and you've got low-level interfaces like the database interface, and you've got a bunch of these low-level interfaces that you touch, and maybe you've got various other services that you deal with. And for each of those, what you do is you wrap them inside this little service wrapper so that you're never directly touching anything. And the idea is that the long-term health of the application comes from building this abstraction layer over every raw interface that you touch. I was a, an, an embedded programming and C guy before I was a Ruby guy. And so it reminds me hugely of the way we used to build mobile operating systems. I, I worked at Palm, among other places, uh, back in the day. And it's a lot Very like cool. how Palm would wrap all the hardware interfaces with the HAL, with the hardware abstraction layer. But anyway, for web programming, you call it an interior architecture. And hexagonal rails is the same idea. The name hexagonal rails, uh, you know how circles don't stack very cleanly, but hexagons stack extremely cleanly? Right. It's hexagonal in that sense. It's the idea that you could stack a bunch of rails stuff together and kind of scale into a very large rails app in a clean way. Because the problem with this same, you know, sharp tools, small team, you know, standard rails way to do it is it really doesn't expand well into gigantic apps. When you get to the point where you've got a thousand controllers, rails gets fairly painful. It's just not basically meant for it. You have to adapt how you do it a lot. Uh, if your thousand controller app looks like a 10 controller app, you're doing something wrong. And so, yeah, anyway, an interior architecture, hexagonal rails, wrap your interfaces, uh, come up with a more stackable way to do it. And a lot of the implicit state that comes with your controller, you instead need to refer to explicitly. A lot of the global variables and global namespace stuff that Active Record does seriously okay. slow you down in a gigantic app with, again, 500 controllers, 1,000 controllers, more than that. You want to wrap these things. Right. Uh, so simply, so the idea being once you hit such a large scale, not like, you know, scale, you know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. large size of application, large yeah. scale coding. You don't mean number of users, you mean number of, of controllers because you can scale anything. And one of the things that's you can scale exactly. is the app size, totally. Right. So what, that's perfect. That's a better way to put it. So once you hit a certain app size, the inherent kind of global namespacing structure of Rails starts to break down, which to me makes a ton of sense, right? 
Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people dislike it well before it hits that point. I mean, there are a few applications that are literally many thousands of controllers. Uh, Cookpad is, is legendary for it and has this beautiful presentation about their enormous application. It's somewhere between awe inspiring and you sort of wonder why they, why they, how they got there. Why did you do that? Though it is amazing that it so works. But, uh, yeah. And so. In the same way, Hanami does a lot more wrapping of interfaces a lot earlier. It does a lot more favoring declared objects over global state, declared areas over global namespaces. You know, if you want to deal with the database, the first thing you do is declare a repo, which scopes to which databases you're dealing with and which config you're dealing with, which, I mean, you can do an active record, but you can do it once in active record by configuring it on the global object. And if you wanted to put three of those in your app, you know, take your ball and go home. It's not, it's not happening. Right. It's not going to happen. Okay. So just like, for people who've never done Rails, Hanami is effectively a competitive framework that takes this hexagonal approach. Then. Yeah, yeah. And so it builds on slightly different components. You know, you're never going to be able to adapt Active Record to do that, but you can adapt. I, I'm completely blanking on the database layer name that, that Hanami uses, but it's, it's another one that was freestanding and is also available in Hanami. And it is, so it's an ORM like active, but it is like the same type of thing, right? Yeah, basically. There are some differences in the declaration and the configuration, but if you're used to active record and you go pick up Hanami, you're not going to go, what in the world is this? No, you're going to say, oh, okay, it's, it's mostly an ORM, but with a little bit of to you because you're not used to it, weird config. Right. So it's like going from Ruby to Python and you have to use SQL Alchemy. It's like, okay, it's the same thing, idea. Yeah. 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 This, this is really interesting to me that the hex, I can't even say the word. Hexagonal. The hex, hexagonal architecture. Yeah. Why hasn't that caught on more? I mean, why don't you hear about it more? I'll give you a biased answer that is my opinion, and you can decide what you think of it. it. If you look at what Rails is really good for, not necessarily Ruby, but Rails is really good for, if you look at its market niche, who uses it, who gets the most value out of it, who is going, you know, pry it from their cold, dead hands. The answer, I think, is little startups, people evaluating business decisions, people who want to cobble together some code quickly and then find out if it has usually market value, but if you know if it fits some other purpose. And the answer is usually going to be no. And so you either adapt it or throw it away. And so you're going through trying to build something that say that you can sell to people as fast as possible. And you're trying to use technical data as quickly as possible. You're trying to write code as sloppily as possible because the vast majority of what you do, you know, you're going to throw away. And so spending a huge amount of time to make it work enormously well is a waste of your time. Sure. You're optimizing for minimizing dev time effectively. Effectively. Yes, exactly. Rails grew up in that world. Rails was laser focused on that world. Rails is still the absolute king of that world. I wish it had more competitors because I would love to see more approaches, but nobody else seems to even want that world. That is the world that Rails absolutely centers around. And so when you say, why isn't there a Rails competitor that instead of building things sloppily, but incredibly quickly, in a way that requires you to do a little adapting, but is incredibly effective at this quick, sloppy thing. Instead, why isn't there one of those that scales up to more sort of enterprisey scales? Well, your first answer is that anybody who came here for the Rails isn't interested in that. Right. Culturally, there's a, there's a misfit there. Anybody who says, oh, oh, I'm here for Rails. Like, I got here because Rails is exactly what I want. Like, what Hanami's offering is just not as attractive to them. And the enterprise people have already, for a variety of reasons, decided that Ruby is not likely to be their thing. Uh, there's a article I wrote a while back, and it's probably time for me to rewrite it better. But what the point I, I make in that one is, uh, if we do everything right, Ruby will stay an enterprise laughingstock forever. That's if we, the Rubyists, do everything right. 
Why is that? Is that because of the folks in the enterprise that they have a bias, or is it because you don't the Rubyists don't want to be in the enterprise? Some of each. So remember that Ruby is amazing at prototyping. Rails especially is amazing at prototyping. But Ruby, I mean, it, it it goes down to the language level. Like you can't have a giant success like Rails without it changing the culture around around the language at least somewhat. So we've got this prototyping thing that we do really well and we care a lot about and we have really good tools for, and that's a huge amount of what's going on there. So think about the kind of small companies that successfully use Ruby and Rails in the way they are meant to by going through and they try out an idea and they scrap it and they try out an idea and they scrap it over and over as fast as possible. Think like the lean startup you know, feedback loop where what you're doing is to learn as much as you can by writing the sloppiest, highest tech debt code you can. And you do that by grabbing other people's gems and you know, including them as dependencies. You do it by writing code that doesn't scale. You do it by all of these practices that speed you up on learning but don't result in good code quality. And this, again, is if Ruby is doing everything right, because that is exactly how you most successfully do the Lean Startup loop, where at the end, you have a bunch of learning where now you know what your market looks like, now you know who your customers are, now you know what they'll buy. When the tech itself, when technical execution is not your primary risk and something else, maybe it's market risk, maybe it's something else, but when it's this agile style of we need to build this out and we don't know what the answer looks like and the hard part is finding the answer, if you did it right, the code's going to be incredibly messy at every step along the way. And at some point, you bought a winning lottery ticket and suddenly you're done with this thing right. that you've built out. You've been throwing things away all the way along, but the stuff you've got left is not good. And so even if you're going to rebuild it in Ruby, you're going to rebuild it. Well, isn't this the, kind of the classic meme, particularly? I remember, you know, I my background is Objective-C and C++ iPhone development. Sure. It's my original kind of home when, when right when that came out. Sure. Um, my first introduction to Ruby was being a contractor for a startup who, just like you said, Rails app, right? Mm-hmm. They flat out, CEO flat out said, well, here's the deal. We're going to throw this app out no matter what. Yep. Because either we're successful and this is not, you know, the old meme Ruby doesn't scale, right? It's yeah. not going to scale for our user base or we're unsuccessful and we're all just going to, you know, be unemployed. Yeah. But the thing it, is, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's it's interesting because I'm also using Rails for some internal applications, and I actually kind of disagree. It does, in my opinion, kind of shine as long as that application is kind of a one or two function focused thing, right? as well, long as it doesn't become too big. What I would say is a an app in any language that you have successfully and appropriately built to be that exact kind of messy doesn't scale. If you did the same thing in Java, it would take you longer because it's harder to build each messy prototype in Java, but the resulting thing would still have to be rewritten. I mean, you could rewrite it piecemeal a little at a time until you eventually got to the right thing, but it would be faster to just rewrite it even if you're staying in Java. It would be faster to just say, okay, here's what we learned from it. I'm going to rewrite this with the understanding that we're not throwing it away when we're done. And so the thing is, it's not really about Ruby doesn't scale, but those practices applied correctly to any language, certainly including Ruby absolutely do not scale if you did it right. And what that means is that for almost all of those, the people who are coming on for the second version, because at that point, they're either selling the company or they're hiring heavily. One way or another, they're bringing on a whole lot of new programmers once they solve that initial problem, the problem that goes, wait, does anybody want this? And so the majority, usually, of the team, their big exposure to Ruby is this horrible thing which was built in exactly the appropriate way and now has to be completely rewritten. 
And especially enterprise folks, they're usually going to see it when the company gets sold. And so at the same time that they're trying to bring on a whole bunch of new programmers to effectively rewrite this thing, but without ever taking it down, without ever, you know, getting rid of those customers they got, they're going to see these horrible Ruby things that should be horrible. That should absolutely be horrible. If they built in a different language, if they built in Java, it would still be horrible. And the difference is that you do occasionally see those built in other languages and you go, oh, yeah, that's 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 a horrible thing for those startups. But Ruby is the ultimate tool for that niche. Ruby is what the most competent people who are going to do the best job of, you know, building that in a fast, messy way will choose every time because every time they've done it i mean it is it's the tool for that like it's beautifully adapted for it it's so good at it and that means that enterprise after enterprise after enterprise is going to see these horrible ruby things that need to be completely rewritten because in that world that is what a healthy app looks like right so basically if the java ee guys are throwing up on the floor once they buy your company and see your application you've done it right congratulations yes that has specific consequences for what the Java EE guys think of Ruby. All right, I'll buy that. I mean, there have been efforts, you know, like particularly on the Java side, we had a Mark Heckler, who's a, a big Java evangelist, where they're trying to adopt. I think you're exactly right, Noah. I think, you know, Rails definitely fits a niche, right? It's a tool for a specific job that works well. And one of the more interesting things I found, particularly kind of like interviewing people and looking at the Java community, specifically is they do keep trying to adopt kind of like have some sort of competitor, right? But it's always, always more architecturally complex. You know what? Gradle versus bundler, that alone is kind of a a difference, let's say, a huge difference. Well, if you look at even the people that get it, you know, Drop Wizard is probably one of the best, lightest weight Java frameworks I've seen. To the extent that a, a Java framework can compete with Sinatra, Drop Wizard is probably your choice for that. And yet, you know, if you look at how much it takes to build a, a little Sinatra style framework in Drop Wizard versus literal, you know, three liners or less in Sinatra, yeah, it's Java's entire ecosystem is built for a whole different set of needs. And the idea that you need to be able to start a new project immediately and just have it suddenly work is not on their radar. It's just that's not a way they evaluate themselves. So you mentioned that I wrote Rebuilding Rails, and I did. Yep. There's actually another book that I have written called Mastering Software Technique that is, is oh, really? most way done. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, added to your little uh, your little show notes thing. And one of the things I'm doing there that is an extremely good match for Ruby, and this is really quite tolerable match for Python. Python's solid too, but would work extremely poorly in Java is the idea of building little, like art projects, building little practice projects that cause you to uh, to become better at software over and over. And the thing is that you need uh, one of those languages where you can just start a new project rapidly. Java people will argue that Java is perfectly good for that. And given wizards and things that you know produce massive amounts of boilerplate, you can absolutely just start a new project rapidly. And the only real counter argument I've got to that is having worked on teams of Java people and watching them try to start new projects. They're terrified of it. Yeah. I mean, it's they treat it like a high ceremony thing. They treat it like a difficult thing. I mean, I treat it like a difficult thing, too. I, just, I, I always want to, you know, read through the files and figure out what's in there. And it takes an enormous amount of like XML configuration and stuff to, to start a, a Java project in most environments. But the Java folks do. Usually, if you work on a team, there's one person who knows how to set up new projects properly. And it's usually the same person who's able to do things like proper JVM debugging where they can track down all the objects and stuff. It's usually the person who has kind of X-ray vision on the whole tool chain. Yeah, that's that's been my experience. And particularly when there's a, a change in the version of, well, really, I see a lot of it too on the .NET side, right? It's really, you know, if you're a .NET developer listening, 
replace the word Java with C sharp or .NET and you're same, same thing, right? It'll all sound very familiar to you. Yeah, they're very similar languages in almost every way, which look at the history of them makes perfect sense. Right, by intention, right? So, yeah, exactly. So, okay. so where do you think Rails is going then, right? If Let's say, because I know we do have this demographically, young university student, bootcamp student listening to the show has heard of Ruby, has heard of Rails. Should they jump into it? Is it what If they want to, what should they know? Well, I think Rails is going to continue to be a great way to get a job for an extremely long time. When I say nobody else is even trying for that niche, that's sadly still true. I mean, there's what, what do you use for that? Rails. Rails is what you use for that. You can sort of bribe your programming team by letting them use something that has more technical cachet. But if you want it to work fast, what you use is Rails. And that's still, by and large, what people do. It's a little harder to get a new Rails app set up than it was, but still not as hard as anything else. For again, for this case, where what you're trying to do is where the technical risk is not the problem and what you're worried about is the market risk. And so it's going to still be good for jobs. So it depends on the boot camper I'm talking to. What I usually do is I try to get a feel for what they want. All of these, you know, is Rails dead? Is Ruby dead? You know, things that you, that you hear over and over. It has a very specific meaning of the word dead in mind. Very specific. And there is a way in which Ruby is long dead. And Rails is really? long dead. And specifically, that way is the same folks who believe that Ruby is competing with, let's say, Node.js, which is an enormously different tool for an enormously different set of uses. And a business person is not going to seriously sit down and go, do we want Rails or do we want Node.js? If they're highly technical, they're going to look at the requirements. And one of those two answers will be right. And it's not always the same answer. You know, if some tasks are suited to one, some tasks are suited to the other. They are not very direct competitors. Go is actually a very, very direct competitor to Node.js, but Rails really isn't. They're good at different things. No, the way in which that you know Ruby is dead thing happens is what they mean is, am I going to sound technically impressive for saying that I've used Rails? Am I going to impress the other computer programmers, right. not the business people, not the people with actual legitimate business needs, the people who want you to you know show that you've done something recently? Am I going to impress them with Ruby anymore? And the answer is no. Yeah, I used to host a show on Jupiter Broadcasting called Coder Radio. And you could see in the metrics, like when I talked about Rails, yeah. you had our normal listeners. But if I just said the word, like if I just whispered Rust or something, whatever the new sexiness that month month was, yep. we would have a massive spike. Yep. Which and not really practical, right? So. Yeah. But Ruby and Rails are never going to give you that spike again. They are never going to be the new hotness again. They have been the new hotness. They're done being the new hotness. They've still got a niche. They're still really good tools, but they will never again be the new hotness. And the kind of people who say, is X dead? I mean, that's not really a technical question, right? That's a fashion question. That's a pop culture question. Is X dead? You are asking, is it ever going to be the new black again? And the answer is no. I don't know, man. Bell bottoms came back. I'm just saying. You know, bell bottoms came back, and I think that Rails is not going to give you nearly as good nostalgia long term as bell bottoms. <laughs> so, just my bias, a little. Does it really matter if it's not cool anymore? Because that's really what we're talking about here, right? Well, that's why I ask them what they want, right? Does it matter if it's not going to be cool anymore? If it's a young programmer who wants to go in and wow the team with something that they've, you know, that they've done, then yes, it absolutely matters. For that person, it absolutely matters. And that's why, that's why I try to tell if that's the person I'm talking to. Because if that's the person I'm talking to, like that's their need and Rails doesn't fill it. 
On the other hand, if I'm talking to a business person, then I lay out a completely different spiel because in that case, what you want is to talk a team velocity, to talk how quickly you can try out your prototypes, right. to talk about, you know, here's this stuff that's already completely written for you in a way you can just drop in. Yes, I know every software developer says that. Let me show you how fast you can build something out using this. In Rails, it works. And it's, it's a different thing, right? It's a whole different set of reasons because I'm talking to somebody with a whole different set of needs. There are absolutely literally people where their big need is to impress other programmers. And if I'm talking to one of them, I'm probably the wrong person to give them advice. And the faster that I figure that out, the faster we can stop frustrating each other. That explains so many awkward conversations I've had at coder camps, or not coder camps, I'm sorry, coder meetups. I guess I fall much more to the extreme. I, although I, I think you're right and I'm wrong that basically, yes, there is a legitimate type of person who actually using something quote unquote fashionable is is good for them. I've always fallen the other way saying actually it's not, you just need to ship. But I, I think I, I'll take your point and I think you're right. Well, it's what I want to do and I wish I had enough time to do it properly. I do some of it already is I would love to chart the various C's of the software developer career path because it's so fascinating. There are so many weird little things. And there are whole areas where what you need to do is impress the other programmers in order to be considered a real programmer TM. And one of the ways that you can do that is to be good at a hot technology. Interesting. Interesting. Now, if you're saying, oh, yeah, I've always been, you know, I always prefer the boring technology, chances are good you've never been in a situation where your big obstacle was to be accepted as a real programmer TM. Fair enough. Like, truly, I never have either. Uh, I came out of an elite school. I, you know, am amazing at whiteboard interviews and other like sit down, write me the code just because I told you about that interviews. I have a ridiculous memory. And so all of these ways that you can impress people without having to do that, I'm great at. I've never needed to do that. That doesn't mean I've never, you know, jumped after the various, you know, latest top technologies. Right. But no, that's really never been my job skill in the same way. And Despite that, there are absolutely people who, as a matter of keeping the job or getting the promotion, sometimes even keeping food on the table, like, no, they, they have to do that. That's what their company is going to judge them on. Sometimes that's it's, a real, genuine need. It's interesting, too, because the way you put that, you made me realize I'm actually sort of not telling the truth. At the time, when I started out, no one was doing Objective-C, right? No one. Yeah. Right. So walking into a room... With, and saying, oh, yeah, we can write this in Objective-C and C++. That was kind of a, a flex, right? Everybody was doing C-sharp, Java. Yeah. So, yeah, so never mind. I'm a hypocrite. You're absolutely right. I I was doing the hot technology, and then time went by, and I didn't have to do it anymore, right? So I just kind of... Well, it's it's easy to forget all the things we've had to do to get where easy. we are. Yeah. I, I've been doing this since 1998. I'm sure if I ever say I never did blah, like there's something I've forgotten that's at least like that. Yeah, I'd say you'll probably touch a whole bunch of languages and frameworks, which I think is a good thing. So, uh, Noah, we, for me. hey, it's fun, right? Noah, so I always ask one very hard question at the end Please. of every What is your workstation and what are your daily drivers? So kind of your tool chain. Sure. So in Ruby, especially, it's hard to get off Macs. I mean, it's hard It's hard not to use a Mac. And sure. so my current Mac, it's a 2015 era MacBook Pro, you know, solid. It's not the very latest, but I don't need the very latest for much of anything. I'm finally doing enough video stuff that I kind of wish I had a proper desktop workstation. And so that's probably going to be the next one I buy. But when I buy it, depends on when this stops actually working. I've got a uh, large, not especially high resolution, but large uh, external monitor on an arm. Uh, I got a stand-up desk. I've got a nice external mechanical keyboard. Ooh, which one? Uh, Fanatic. F N A T I T. Yeah, it's, nice. it's it's solid. It's fine. Also, it's got uh, the different colored LEDs under that, and it sort of slowly changes color. So my kids call it the disco keyboard. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, uh, for starters, the new Macs have terrible keyboards. And so while mine is old enough that it's still got the nicer keyboard, you know, the keyboard that still has physical buttons for everything, at some point I'm going to have to switch. And so I might as well get used to the idea that I need an external keyboard now. So doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I've uh, taken more than one of those new Macs to the Apple store for replacement keyboards. Yeah. And so I figure get used to the mechanical now, and that's going to be my actual daily driver as far as using it. Other than that, the rest of it's AV setup. And I don't know, I don't know if you want to hear about, you know, my camera and microphone setup in, in huge detail, but that's, that's what I've been working on more uh, lately. No, that's very cool. And so you have the two books out now, right? Just briefly, what are you doing with the AV setup? Is there more content that's available or is there something coming out in the future? Some of each. So if you were to go to my Twitter right now, where right now is the 30th of March, so probably when your listeners hear it, uh, not not right now anymore, I did a mock interview with a, a friend of mine named Nellie Toby. I've done a couple of little things with her. It's awesome having a new programmer because I've been doing this so long that I forget what to ask. And having somebody to whom it is genuinely new, she can ask the right questions and I can answer them. And so I'm a lot more useful than I otherwise would be. Because you know, if I just do whatever I think they need, you know, what a new programmer would need, I usually answer the wrong questions. But I'm good at answering the questions once I've got the right, right. questions. It's another lovely reason to be on a podcast like yours. You're more likely to ask interesting questions that I wouldn't think of. Anyway, but I've got a nice interview with her done entirely on the, you know, the microphone and the camera setup, etc. And I've been doing a few things like that. No, the intent is to do a series of screencasts themed around rebuilding rails. Uh, and I'm working toward that. I'm getting closer to that. Very cool. uh, yeah. And also to do a series of a series of exercises basically for mastering software technique. Mastering software technique grew out of me teaching myself to draw, like with charcoal pencils. Really? And, yeah. So here, I'll, I'll give you the brief spiel, and I'll give you the, the way that doesn't make it sound terribly intriguing. If you want it to sound really good, set aside a half hour and look at my Ruby conscious coding practice talk, which is, is introducing it all the right way. I've already given you the punchline, but let me give you the version where you already know the punchline. Software engineers tend to think that we should be learning from civil engineers and from mathematicians. We try to teach ourselves like we were so civil engineers and mathematicians. And it turns out that those two categories have almost nothing in common with what we do. Saying it's software engineering, like we're the same kind of engineer is, is completely wrong. But no, our big challenges are that we have way too many tools and we have a small number of underlying concepts that we have to teach through these tools in some way. You want to learn object-oriented design, but you have to learn it through the lens of Ruby or C-sharp or C++ or whatever. You know, you want to learn about modularity, but you have to learn it through this language you're using. And we have way too many and we keep inventing more. So we have a massive number of tools. You know who else has this exact same set of challenges, who has the same problems, is artists. They have a ludicrous variety of tools. Literally anything you can use to make a mark on paper or anything else has been used for art at one time or another. And yet they have these underlying concepts like composition and like contrasting colors and things like that, that all artists have to know. They have the same problems. And so I thought, oh, well, I mean, they've been teaching art for a while. I, I looked it up. It's about 40,000 years they've been teaching art. A, a while. How do they do that? Like, do they have a series of, of different kind of ways of, of doing these exercises? And so... At some point, I realized that no, they have a few simple technique exercises that are about learning the tool. You can do a certain amount of learn the charcoal pencil by by making you know parallel lines with the charcoal pencil, and it's it's muscular control as much as it's anything else. And then they have one technique that they use across all these concepts and all these tools from the time when you've just been doing it for a couple of weeks to the time you, to when you're a great master who's been painting for 50 years. They use the same basic exercise, which smacked me in the face, I'll tell you. I mean, I kept coming up with, oh, well, it's, you know, how do we adjust these? Extra I, I kept come, trying to come up with new things. And no, it turns out they got one thing and they use it all the way across. And it's a life study. If you're a visual artist, you look at the thing 
and you draw the thing. Or if you're painting, you paint the thing. But, you know, you look at the thing and you reproduce the thing. And they have a number of different kinds of them. They have figure drawing where you look at a, a person and you draw them. And they have still lifes where you look at an object and you draw it. And they have various kinds of other studies that I could go into more detail than you care about. But what they do is they look at the thing and they draw it. And that's the study. That's the whole deal. There's a little more technique to it than that, but that's the basic deal. And I kind of stopped and I went, huh, we could do that. Like, I wouldn't have to adjust that technique very much, not more than you do for different kinds of artists. We could do that. And the short version is, yes, we can. Uh, some of us already do. And we can still learn from the people who've been teaching it for 40,000 years rather than since the 1960s. There are a few little little bits of how they practice that we can just straight up steal from them and we should wow you know what that i think that's just an amazing uh amazing concept to leave it on noah gibbs <laughs> thank you and uh, you know what i strongly recommend your books and i'm gonna link to that talk that is that concept blows me away that's really good and the talk is free i mean it's it's a RailsConf talk so if you want to see this introduced properly yeah i definitely recommend my RailsConf talk because I'll, I'll come at it the right way which is to say from your point of view as a software engineer if none of the art stuff right. sounds interesting to you there's the RubyConf talk is the way to go. Hey, I have a degree in medieval literature, so <laughs> I have a weird background uh, myself. So, all right, Noah Gibbs, thanks for coming on. And uh, seriously, folks, you got to check this guy's stuff out. Good stuff. Well, thanks for asking me. It's you know great to be here. Great to talk to you. All right. Thank you, Noah.